We began our series on Romans a few weeks ago, and I invited us to envision Paul running toward us with a letter in his hand shouting, Church! Church! I have good news. Those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks, you're saying you're going to say that again. Yes, I'm going to say it every week. To envision Paul running towards us saying, church, church, I have good news. But then as we've read over the last two weeks, the, the first few paragraphs of Romans, we, we, we open them and we think, well, what sort of good news is this? It starts with, with all sorts of confusing commentary about God's judgment, about God's wrath. And it almost seems like Paul was working some things on his own. He was working through some things on his own, some of his own struggles, some of his own thoughts about what it looks like to, to follow Jesus in the world in which he lived. We, we kind of get some insight to, to how he was processing what it looked like to, to follow Jesus in his day. It starts with, with these, these confusing commentaries, with these confusing thoughts, and, and at the very least, he's, he's articulating the belief that we can't really experience God's grace. Last week's takeaway was we can't really experience God's grace until we understand our deep need for it. And, and today, at the tail end of chapter 3, we finally get some more clarity around how that grace looks, around how that, that good news that Paul was so excited to bring actually works itself out. And it all hinges on the truth that we are made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. God moved first. God loved first. God loves first. And we respond to that love. Before we get to today's second reading, I want to uh, briefly return to a, a place we started in the first week from Romans 1, 16 and 17. The, the, mo- the, the passage that most believe kind of sets the tone for the entire letter. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul was driven by this, this message, by the gospel, by the revelation of God's righteousness. All that he, he writes comes from that drive, comes from that place, which is the entire reason that he spends nearly three chapters talking about why we need that gospel. Then at the end of chapter 3, we, we get to two beautiful, beautiful words that are, are easy to pass over if we're just reading through quickly. But now. Two, two beautiful words. But now. They completely shift Paul's focus from the depth of human inadequacy back to the complete righteousness of God. But now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate, demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who justly the circumcised, who justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps my my favorite story in all of, of the Gospels comes from John chapter 8. It's a story that, that most of us know. One that answers questions about who Jesus was and, and who Jesus is and leaves us asking a, a few more questions about what Jesus' identity means for those of us that follow him. Jesus, he's, he's teaching in the temple courts like he often did. And crowds, they, they gather around him. Teachers of the law, they, they find a woman caught in the act of adultery and they believe that it's, it's so important. It's so important that they need to interrupt what Jesus is saying to bring her in front of the crowd, to bring her in front of Jesus. And they, they bring her and they lay her at Jesus' feet. And they say to her, they, they, they say to, to everyone, to Jesus so everyone could hear, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. There there was no doubt. She was likely half naked, probably had something wrapped around her, a a sheet of some sort, and she was obviously embarrassed. And, And the teachers of the law, they continue, in the law, Moses commanded that she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? What what do you say should happen right here? They're doing what they often did. They, they were trying to track, trap him, which this game, it repeats itself over and over in Scripture. And they, they spent a lot of time and energy trying to prove that he didn't actually value the law, that he didn't actually value the foundation of their faith. Jesus was faced with a decision. Should he hold up the integrity of the law? Or should he show grace? and compassion to the woman caught in sin. He he sees the terror in her eyes. He hears her voice shaking. He knew that she was guilty. But he wouldn't allow this woman to be a pawn in the religious elite's game. So what does he do? He he bends down and he, he writes in the dirt. We don't know exactly what he wrote, But it's safe to to guess that it it took the attention off the woman and on to the ground where he was writing. That it gave her a few moments of feeling the weight of the magnitude of all of those eyes looking at her and shaming her. Then he turns to the men who, who brought this woman before him and says, If you're without sin, 
Go ahead. What does he say? Go ahead and throw the first stone. One by one, they they drop their stones and they walk away. This encounter with Jesus, the woman, the religious elite of the day, it illustrates this law, grace dilemma that Paul spends the better part of Romans unpacking. Jesus knew that she broke the law. He agreed that she had sinned. And he also had an obligation to uphold the law. And at the same time, he was intent on offering her grace, on offering her redemption. The same thing that he offers the crowd that walk away and drop their stones. Paul addresses the same dilemma, but on this this massive scale for the whole of the church in Rome really for the whole of humanity. And we can say, as I mentioned earlier, that he's wrestling with with what that looks like for himself. There's no question about human sin or about divine judgment in his mind. But there's also undeniable evidence of God's love for his people. God longs for the church in Rome. God longs for us to to be made right with our creator. We see that truth in this part of Romans, which, which Luther referred to in Romans 3, 21 through 31 as, as the chief point of the entire letter. Paul writes about how, how God's righteousness is revealed. And when we say God's righteousness, what we really mean is right with God. How do we be made right with God? And Paul writes about it, how it's revealed, how it's received, how it's achieved, and how it's demonstrated. And we're going to unpack those words it all, it all begins with that, that plot change, that but now moment. After all the wrath talk, after all the judgment talk, after going on and on about the depravity of humanity, now starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been made known just as the law and the prophets testified. We move from the depth of our own inadequacy to the breadth of the righteousness of God. I read a, a headline earlier last week, or earlier this week, I should say, that, that said that last weekend's divisional NFL playoff games were the best four games played in one weekend in NFL history. I thought, huh, that's a bold statement. And of course, I clicked the link, I read the article, and then I spent entirely too much time trying to prove it wrong. <laughs> But using one metric, it was completely true. First, the Titans, the number one seed in the AFC, battled back to tie the Bengals. But then, Ewan McPherson kicked a game-winning field goal as time expired. Then it was the 49ers and the Packers in the snow and Lambeau. Green Bay went up 7-0, then 10-3. And it seemed like the 49ers couldn't move the ball at all. But then... There was a blocked punt recovered in the end zone. I know some of you that don't like football, you're like, really? How long do we have to do this? Three more weeks. (laughs) But then there was this plot change, and it was 10-10, and then there was another field goal as time expired. Then it was our Rams versus Tom Brady's Bucks. The Rams were cruising to victory. And then Tom Brady's team does, did what Tom Brady teams do, and they came back and scored 20-some points. 
And then with 42 seconds remaining, one impossible pass led to another. And but then the Rams kicked a field goal as time expired. By the time the fourth game started, there was no way, there was no way that we could have another exciting game. But then, but then the Chiefs and the Bills scored 25 total points in the last two minutes and pushed the game into overtime. And Mike Boozer's Chiefs won. Good stories in historic events, they are built on these but then, but now moments. Our lives are full of them. Preschool to elementary school. High school to college. No kids in the house to kids in the house. Back to no kids in the house. And then maybe again to kids back in the house. Working to retirement. And everything in between, they're all full of but now moments. Significant shifts in our lives are often defined by those, those plot changes. And that's exactly what Paul is writing about here. So let's spend two and a half chapters talking about God's judgment and wrath. But now, now it looks different because the righteousness of God has been revealed. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was no way for a person to really be made right with God. But now, a new era had been ushered in. As Paul continues, he explains that that shift even further. He he writes, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's righteousness is freely given and we get to respond how to respond, how to respond to that gift. One of the memories that's kind of always haunted me from my childhood was from Christmas morning when I was six or seven years old. My, my grandmother, Ella, she gave me a gift and I don't even remember what that gift was, but I opened it and I said something that I learned from television Something I learned from a, a commercial, from a, a Cheetos commercial, from Chester, the, from Chester the Cheetah. Every time in the commercial when I was growing up, he'd end the commercial with saying, it's not easy being cheesy. So my grandma, she hands me this gift and I respond with, it's not easy being cheesy. I had no idea that cheesy meant cheap. But I, I could tell by the look on her face that I had said something wrong. When Paul writes that righteousness is given through faith, he's saying it's offered as a gift to all who believe. We can either receive it gratefully or we can reject what's offered. How are we receiving what is offered? Next, Paul writes, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. God's righteousness achieved, it's, it's the what and the how of salvation. Now, in, in these two sentences, he, he uses three pretty heavy theological terms to describe how righteousness is achieved. Justification, which has a legal connotation, 
Redemption, which is connected to, to, to purchasing or economic language. And atonement, which was mostly seen as religious or church language. When he writes that all are, are justified, when he used that justification language, justified freely by his grace, he's saying that God takes on all the sin and brokenness we talked about the last two weeks and says, you are loved and you are accepted, not guilty anymore. I have taken care of it. The, the redemption that Paul talks about here refers to forgiving of a, a debt or settling a score. The word he uses was connected to paying a ransom for someone who is enslaved or who is holding a, a long-standing debt. So Jesus' death is a ransom payment made to free us from the slavery of our sin. The debt that we could never pay on our own has been paid in full. In Christ, we have been redeemed. So there's justification, there's redemption, and then we get to this atonement language. Justification and redemption, they're, they're definitely sacrificial, but atonement, it, it carried almost this, this more personal undertone. The first readers of Romans would have read the phrase that, that Paul uses in verse 25, that the phrase, the sacrifice of atonement, and envisioned something that their ancestors talked about, something that, that their ancestors referred to as the mercy seat. It, it was the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant for the Israelites as they, they wandered and later sat in the holiest place in the temple. This this mercy seat was the place where God would meet God's people and offer grace and forgiveness. The image that Paul is invoking is that of a priest approaching the mercy seat on behalf of his people to sacrifice on the altar. It was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, sacrificing on behalf of his people. It's God looking to us and saying, I'm not excusing the sin. I'm not setting it aside. Instead, I'm taking it on. So we, we get this idea. We get this idea of, of, of justification, of redemption, and atonement. In verse 25 and 26, Paul concludes that, that God's longing for us to be made right with him is ultimately demonstrated through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is both the way that God makes things right and the way God makes it possible for us to live in a right relationship. So Jesus is both the answer of, well, how does God make things right? Jesus. And, and how are we made right? Jesus. It's a means and the ends all at once. So when we look at God's righteousness, when we talk about things like justification and redemption and atonement, sometimes it's simply best to receive the gift and, and to say thanks, to do our best to accept God's love and to share that love with other people. One of my, my favorite translations of, of verses 27 and 28, which follows this, this whole section on, on God's righteousness, really gets to the heart of how this justification works. So I want to invite you just for a moment to, to close your eyes and to hear these words. What we've learned is this. God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. 
We have finally figured it out. Our lives get in step with God and all others by letting Him set the pace, not by proudly or anxiously trying to run the parade ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for what You do and for what You have done. Lord, for Your longing to be with us, for Your longing for us to be right with you. Remind us that we are justified and redeemed by grace and by grace alone. We pray these things in your name. Amen.